Gloria? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You have been a professional singer since you were a teenager. Mm -hmm. You had a big hit record. You co-wrote and sang the theme song for The Facts of Life. And now you have a number one album, which we'll get to. So imagine how flipped out I was when your sister had me show up to do a singing telegram to you at your going away party when you were leaving Days of Our Lives. Oh my gosh. Isn't that I had to sing to you. And she wrote words to the tune of Facts of Life. And I thought it was so clever. I still remember it. Your days on days have all gone by, and now it's time to say goodbye at your farewell. Oh, at your fa- <laughs> oh you, you remember, remember it. Oh, my gosh. I, I know. You made quite an impact. Ah, I, I See, I don't remember that song, so you didn't make an impact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. I wore a tuxedo for that singing telegram I and everything. I remember that. I think I was just so excited about the whole thing. Everything oh. went by in a flash. Well, Gloria Loring, it's quite a living. And for me, it was quite a meeting. Hey, it's E.B. Moss, and this is episode six of It's Quite a Living. And the living we're talking about today is that of Gloria Loring. You might know her as the singer of the number one hit song, Friends and Lovers, or you might know her as Liz Chandler from Six Years on Days of Our Lives. Did you also know that she is the co-composer of the theme songs, Different Strokes and Facts of Life? And she sang that one too. She's also sung on the Emmy Awards, the Johnny Carson Show, the Golden Globes, and even on the Academy Awards. And she's the mother of Robin Thicke. Yes, as in Blurred Lines. Right. But I know Gloria as the sister of one of my dearest friends. This show is dedicated to the memory of my friend Peggy Goffbotker. And Peggy, who introduced me to Gloria, uh, also introduced me to so many different things. We took our first cruise together. I experienced hanging out with celebrities when she was living in Gloria's guest house in the hills of Beverly Hills. And it, it was just a remarkable time back in the 80s. And I thank her so much for introducing me to so many wonderful things and memories and also for having Gloria in my life still to this day. So we're going to talk about some memories and what's going on today. So here's the thing. I love doing this podcast because I always learn about my friends when I have to actually research them because, you know, I I, I kind of just know you as you and I had this peripheral exposure to you as a celebrity, but this was a huge time in your life also for a lot of reasons. You had been, I think, divorced a few years from Alan Thicke. You had a number one hit song, Friends and Lovers. You um, had just come off of your, what, six years as Liz Chandler on Days of Our Lives. Holy moly. And your sister, one of my all-time best friends, had just moved into your guest house. So, <laughs> well, I will tell you something funny. That that one week, it was my last week on Days of Our Lives. My first book came out. Friends and lovers reached number one, and my divorce became final. I'd been separated for two years, but my divorce became final all in the same week. And talk about a confluence of events! Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. 
You know, this is all about memory lane and and then celebrating how you got to where you are and and who you are as a person. And there's so much glory. We're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we'll do it. But um, there's so much that I learned about you, but also so much that I was exposed to. So I want to share a little backstory. I met your sister, my darling friend, Peggy Goff Bodger, um, when I was doing voiceover in San Francisco, and oh. she was my producer. Mm-hmm. It was right after college, but she was already so successful. We were in our 20s, oh. and she was an excellent producer. She was in the booth. I was behind the mic, and then she moved down and moved into your guest house, yeah. and then I sort of trotted along after that um, and would stay at your house and LA. And oh my gosh, I was so wowed by that. So mm. that was the origins of, of meeting you through my friend Peggy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And we'll talk about Peggy a bit. Um, and we, we lost her about eight years ago, I think. Uh-huh. Eight years ago. Mm. Mm. Anyway. This is about you as my friend, and thank you for carrying the torch of the Gloria Peggy sister team in my life. Well, it was passed to me, so I got to take it. (laughs) Yes. Um, Let's talk about how you evolved to where you are today. Um, You are a singer. You're a songwriter. You're an actress. You're an author. You're a keynote speaker. I think I've seen you in every one of those roles. And of course, we mentioned that you had a number one hit song, Friends and Lovers. But you want to start with your early days because I think it's about the path. Well, I think it's just fun when we look back and and we we say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got here from there. Uh, When I started, my my parents were getting divorced. I was 16. I was in a group called Those Four and it was three guys, uh, two guitars, a stand-up bass, and me out front. It was sort of a uh, pseudo Peter, Paul, and Mary plus one. <laughs> and we sang folk songs and did some of the local clubs, some very famous cl- folk clubs. One was the Pegasus in Fort Lauderdale, which I think was a few years ago. They sent me something about the 50th anniversary or something anyway. I loved to sing. I loved to be on stage. I loved the applause. I loved the lights. I just wanted people to listen to me and pay attention and tell me I was terrific. Mm. And so I set out on a path to do that. And I loved singing and I loved music, much like my son, Robin, and then my grandson, Julian, who is 10 and listens to Billie Holiday and Nina Simone. And he's going to be, and he listens to all the women singers and he's going to be a singer. He already is. He's already writing songs. His daddy helps him record them. It's very, it's just wonderful. It's so much fun to see. I love that. And we should talk about the legacy because you were influenced by your dad, who I remember. He was a, a trumpet player, big band trumpet player or jazz trumpet player. Yeah. Right? Yes. Both of those things. Yep. Absolutely. He played with Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then before him, there were three more generations of his sister was a, a, a child prodigy violinist. His mother, his <laughs> mother played trombone and wrote for big bands and died in her early 20s of a botched abortion. Oh, my. And we just found that out a few years ago. 
And we wondered why we lost her. No one ever said, you know, because nobody talked about it in the family. But she had her fourth child in like four years. And she was making a name for herself as an arranger for big bands as a woman in the 20s. That's Mm -hmm. extraordinary. And she just couldn't have another child, she felt. She felt it was too hard on her, I guess. Wow. And yeah, so we lost her and my my dad grew up without a mom, but we had all those musicians and there were two more generations before that of musicians. So Julian will be the sixth generation. And you mentioned Robin. We have to pay homage to Robin Thicke, your son, who I used to babysit with Peggy. Mm. Um, and that era when I met you, he was probably eight or nine years old. <laughs> okay, Julian's 10. So that's about, yeah. It's a generation later. So I think it's, you know, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. But uh, And then your other son, Brennan, also did voiceover. He was the voice of Dennis the Menace in the 80s. When he was 10, 11, 12, and then his voice started to change and he lost the gig, you know. But, <laughs> but while he was 10 to 12, he was the voice of Dennis the Menace. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. All and right. Brennan still does... Um, jam sessions over the internet with his friend DJ, DJ stuff. So a lot of music in the family. I love that. I love that. Um, Well, I remember your boys fondly and I want to get back to your career path, but not forget to mention that I made a new friend because of Robin back maybe 10 years ago, um, right before Blurred Lines came out um, before he really was big on the charts. So this was this was probably eight, ten years ago. He did a, a guest concert for One Eight Hundred Flowers, and I attended, and we had a fun reunion. And at that event where he was the featured singer, I met a new friend of mine, Andrea Sirtash, and I have a photo of Robin singing. And then there's Andrea in the background, and it's a woman that I'm friends with to this day. And so we always have that fun reminder of Robin connecting us. Um, it's another way of uh, talking about coincidence, which we'll get to. So anyway, then you're 16, and you're influenced by... Yeah, then I, then I got an agent. Um, I got an agent, and I went out on the road, and I worked clubs after clubs all by myself on the road. I was 18 years old with my music and Hannah graduated high school, started working immediately. And um, I borrowed $100 from my dad at one point because I I was going to be homeless and I got a motel room to live in. And I had to put quarters in the air conditioner. And I had $20 a week for food. And I would go and get a pound of hamburger, um, a, a quart of milk, a box of cereal and a can of peas, and then hope somebody would ask me out for lunch or dinner. No, this I did not know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, a job that I'd been waiting for came up and I got had some money. And then I wound up going being booked on the road. And I went and I, you know, traveled. I was 18 all by myself. Amazing. Amazing. Well, it speaks to your fortitude. And I know that uh, you've applied that fortitude well. now, the other thing that I came across was one of the clips from the Carol Burnett show when you were like 21. 21, exactly 21. <laughs> I loved it. So there's a great clip of you singing, but then there's another clip of you hysterical. 
as the sultry blonde in the mock of Valley of the Dolls with with it's a send up of Valley of the Dolls and everybody <laughs> it was Carol, Vicky, and myself, and I was the blonde out front with the long hair, you know, and uh, it was it was pretty funny because we delivered every line completely deadpan with no expression. No, no energy at all. We just delivered the line flat. And that was our, our take on that movie. It was was great. Now, but you really stayed on um, mostly as a singer. I mean, you were a Johnny Carson favorite. I researched and appeared on that as a singer and, and continued on that path as well. And it wasn't until years later that you really, uh, took off with your acting career, yes? Well, I started studying acting, but but it didn't get me anywhere. Um, I never had an agent, hardly ever had an agent who sent me out. They would say, oh, well, if they wanted a, a singer in a role, acting role, then we'll call her. I said, no, 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 but I can, I can be an actress too. Really, I can, you know. And finally, um, a former associate of mine came to see me in my acting class and said, you can really do this. He said, I'm going to start booking you. And the third calling he sent me out on uh, was Days of Our Lives. And I won the role with with three other actresses. And we screen tested and I got it. And what was Liz Chandler like? And how did she exit the show? Well, Liz was a, was a, a wonderfully complex person. She had a difficult relationship with her dad. So there was that. Um, she came from a very wealthy family. She was a bit of a chanteuse, had played around with singing. And so when I first started singing on the show, I sang more hesitantly, not uh, with much full voice at all. And then gradually I let Liz grow into my voice. And, uh, and, and of course you can't account for soap operas because the storylines at one point we were supposed to have somebody who was invisible and some people could see it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, it could be a thing. I think it was around then when I was thinking, maybe I need to get out of here. (laughs) All right. was a little crazy. But anyway, the way Liz came onto the show was she moved to Salem. And then uh, she was supposed to be very snobby. But her father was a diplomat and I said, an ambassador, actually. And I said, if she's been raised where you have to be an ambassador and you have to have manners, she's not going to be snooty and nasty to people. They wanted me to be very well, 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 you know, you know, very judgmental. And uh, so I said, I thought that doesn't make any sense. She'd be a, a nice person. She might be two faced but she'd be a nice person to people's faces. So anyway, so they gradually, they saw how I played the character. They liked it. They wrote more things for me. They put me together with Joe Gallison, who played Neil. And then Neil and Liz were an item for most of the six and a half years I was on the show. And as part of Liz as Chanteuse, that's where you actually were able to work in the song Friends and Lovers, right? Well, what happened was that song was sent to the show. Oh. And and one of the other people on the show, I think it was Peter Reckle, sang it when I wasn't there one day. And it was okay and everything. But one of the producers thought that would be a great song for Gloria. And uh, so I came in and I was 
having a little pity party that day about I'm never going to have a hit record because now everybody thinks of me as a soap opera actress. You know, that dream is done. And she called me up to her office and she said, I want you to hear this song. She played the song for me. And after the first chorus, you know, I'll be your friend and I'll be, I turned the tape recorder off. This is how long ago it was. It was a tape recorder. (laughs) And I said, that's a hit song if I ever heard one. And I started singing it on the show and it became the most requested piece of music ever in the history of NBC daytime television. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I read it got like tons of fan mail. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so then after that is when you recorded it with Carl and I we Carl and I recorded it while I was on the show while I was doing it on the show I was recording it we were trying to find someone to distribute it we finally found a small French label they gave us all kinds of trouble I it's it's a story you know that I don't want to even repeat (laughs) (laughs) but the fans spoke and it became number yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. It, it was number one on a number of the charts. It was number one in Canada. It was number one on every market in the United States. But it only got to number two on the pop charts because Higher Love by Steve Winwood was number one. And it wouldn't budge. But uh, but we were number one on the AC, easy listening chart, et cetera, et cetera. It was fun. It was such a heady time. Oh, my gosh. My dream came true. Okay, so this is really weird. And my friends will confirm this story. I can't believe that you were number two because of Higher Love. Uh Because throughout this pandemic, I've had that song stuck in my head over and over. And I have friends who are very spiritual and think it's, you know, very telling, you know, bring me a higher love, da, da, da. Now I know it's because I was supposed to do this podcast episode. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about why, you know, a coincidence is so relevant to our conversation. You wrote a book called Coincidence is God's Way of Remaining Anonymous. And you and I mm. have, have had a lot of those dinks. So <laughs> how did that come about, Gloria? Well, um, it started back when I was on the show and the first year and I was thinking about how to raise money for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation because one year earlier my son Brennan had been diagnosed with diabetes and anyway fast forward I decided to put together a Days of Our Lives celebrity cookbook and I had a lot of help and as people came forward and underwrote the process we needed $50,000 for the paper and, and the printing and all of that kind of stuff and we were almost there, but had just we just missed the final mark. And I was thinking to myself, something's got to happen. This is ridiculous. We're almost there. We didn't come this far to fail now. Something's going to change. And I went into Days of Our Lives that morning at like 6 in the morning. I put my bag down on the chair. Um, I went and did my lines and got the blocking, you know, the where you're supposed to stand when, etc. Finished the work, picked up my bag, and under my bag was a little card that said, expect a miracle. What? It said, expect a miracle. This is the, the first chapter of my book. This is how the book came to be written. 
And I thought, well, what is this? And I thought, and I was going to throw it in the trash, but something in me said, no, don't throw away a card that says expect a miracle. <laughs> so I put it in my carry bag and left. And I went to catch a plane to Houston because I was playing in a celebrity tennis tournament for the hospital there, et cetera, the next morning. And uh, while I was there um, that night, a man came up to me and said, Gloria, do you remember me? And he said his name. And he was a very, very, very wealthy man who I had met years earlier. And this little voice in my head said, tell him about the cookbook. Tell him about the cookbook. And he said, so tell me what you're doing. I know your son has diabetes. And I said, well, I said, yeah. And I've got this cookbook that's going to raise money. We have 10 million viewers. And I'm going to give it away for a $10 donation to the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. He said, I love that. I said, yeah, the only problem is I don't have enough underwriters. I need to raise $50,000. And he said, well, hell, he said, I'll give you 10. Come on, let's go out and let's go out in the lobby. I got some friends here tonight. So by the time we finished that night, I had $17,500. The rest of the money came in and the cookbook was printed we printed 50,000 copies. We sold out. We printed a second 50,000 copies. We sold out, raised over a million dollars for diabetes research. Oh, my Lord. So I love that. That's the first chapter of the book about how this, just when I said, you know, something's got to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all had those kind of feelings. Some, something, what am I missing? What am I missing? Who's, right. what's, what's, something's coming. Something's about to break. You get, get this ener energy shift. So it was a very exciting time. Very, very exciting. So you've had so many coincidences, coincidences <laughs> in your life. The funny thing is also is that, you know, we talked about how when I first met you, um, was hanging out with you guys a lot. And I was holding hands with you on one side, I think, during Hands Across America, that anthem when people yeah, were aiming to yeah. raise money for that. So yes. my last episode of It's Quite a Living was with my stepbrother, Mark Blatt, who wrote the ballad, Hands Across America. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so That's amazing. The hits just keep on coming. <laughs> so I I love that book, and, and it gives me an opportunity to, to sort of bring Peggy up again. I had such amazing, amazing times with her from our days in San Francisco to our days in Los Angeles. And, and you were peppered throughout. But another coincidence, um, about maybe a year after Peggy passed away, I was on business somewhere in maybe Texas. And I had a copy of your book with me. And I happened to either read on social media or be in touch with Peggy's widower, Eduardo, that I happened to be in Texas. He said, I'm in Texas. I said, where are you? He was in the same town and we were able to meet up. And I have a photo of Eddie and me sitting at a diner in the middle of Texas, holding up a copy of your book. About I remember Texas. that. I remember that. That was funny. Yeah. That was fun. I also wanted to tell you another <laughs> coincidence. So again, back when I first met you, I am not ashamed to admit that I was a bit of a soap opera addict. Okay. I was of the CBS ilk. So I was watching uh, The Young and the Restless a lot. You might know where this is going. 
I had a big crush on um, one of the stars um, and I showed up at your house and like an Adonis emerging from the pool, there was the man you were dating at the time. <laughs> was the same guy you had a crush on. Okay. Yes. yes. That was a shocker. Don- Donald yeah. Diamond. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And it was Speedo and all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. We, so, were, we were together for three and a half years. Really? And, yeah. Three and a half years. It was It was very serious, but I realized I would never marry him. And his father passed and he said, I need to become a father. I need to have a family of my own. And I said, and he was quite a bit younger than me. And I said, then you need to go do that. And we, that's how we split. And even we talked in the last couple of years, we talked once or twice, just Mm. forgotten why, but he had a book out about sons, Mm. about raising all his, he has seven sons. That he raises. Well, he made good on his uh, his determination. Into a family in spades, yes. So sort of back to the present now and, and to your son. Robin is, of course, one of the um, judges on The Masked Singer. Yes. Have you been asked if you thought you might be able to stump him if you were to appear on the masked singer? I, I, no, I haven't been asked. <laughs> I wouldn't even be, begin to entertain it. And, you know, I, I gave up live performance two years ago. That's enough now. I've been doing it since I was a teenager. Enough. But I, but I wouldn't try to stump him. I, I wouldn't think that would work. All right. I don't think so either. Because they give clues, too. Oh, okay. Clue number one. It's your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you might not be doing live performing now, but you still managed to have a number one album. Well, it's actually an EP. It's just four songs. And the one that's the number one called um, The Best of Me is number one on the Euro Indie Charts, World Indie Charts. And it was it went to number 12 and then it went to four. And I'm going, this is crazy. I mean, we just released it because I had it in the vault and I was said to my PR manager, as I said, Tom Esty, I said, Tom, I said, every there's lots of music out there. Nobody needs this music. He said, people need to hear this. People need to hear this. I said, okay. He said, let me take care of it. I'll do the whole thing. You just have to do some interviews here and there and get me a picture and whatever. So I did what he asked. He did the, everything else. And it, it just caught on, you know, so amazing. You can't, you can't help but succeed. You don't expect those things to happen at this, you know, I figured, okay, I'm done. I did what I did. And, and then this comes along. Yeah. Well, people, people love you, Gloria. And and you have such a beautiful voice. I remember um, you came to, to visit me. Well, you, you were visiting New York. You stayed with me for a couple of nights and we went to, um, a a sort of open mic night, but it was really for, I think it was at Feinstein's or something like that. And it was for really a lot of Broadway singers who got up there and um, I walked in with you and the host was falling all over you. And of course me being sort of like a side hustle little singer, he said, yeah, okay, you can sing too, Eby. And I got up there and the first time I sang in front of you, 30 years after I did that singing telegram for you, I called the wrong key. So whatever song it was, 
I was singing like this and I couldn't get out of my room. (laughs) I was mortified. Then you got up and the whole place is on their feet and people are cheering and applauding and you just like, oh my God. Yeah. I've had had my moments that were less than stellar. So don't worry. We all do. Do share. Is there one you can remember? Uh, Yeah, there was one. It was uh, 1976 Uh and I was to do the anthem for the soccer game on the 200th anniversary of the United States of America and sing the national anthem. And I get there and they don't give me any special parking. So I'm parked on the opposite side of the stadium. And they said, you have to, there's nobody to meet me. Usually with, when I did it for the Raiders or the Rams, I mean, you're escorted, you're treated like royalty. You know, they just show up and go here and go there. Well, by the time I ran around trying to find where my tickets were, then I found my passes. Then I got, then they, they ran me up the flight of stairs to rehearse the anthem. And I said, A flat, starting note in E flat. And he said, okay, fine, go. You got to go now. Go, go, go. And I, and I ran all the way, like scooted down to the field, got on the field and he played. Da, 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 da. Uh-oh. Crickets. I could not hear the key. I was so rattled. I like blacked out. I And I have perfect pitch. And I could not. I was so frantic from running all over and out of breath and everything. And people finally started singing the anthem. And then when I heard them, then I could sing along. And I got booed as I left this. And I, I said, I will never sing in public again. And it all worked out fine. Oh my lord! <laughs> no, no, no. When I do it, I do it big time. Yes, yes. Okay, that's that's better than the uh, Feinstein's basement <laughs> story. <laughs> oh well, you um, you do talk about the fact that you know you're officially retired and and you're enjoying things, but I want to talk a little bit more about the personal you. I mean, another thing that you influenced both Peggy and me about was the spiritual side of life. And my friend Peggy spent her last weeks slash months with you. Um, You are a very good caretaker, but I know that she also developed quite a spiritual side. Is that something that you can share about your philosophy? I think think my dad was an alcoholic. My family split up when I was 15 you know, I think I was searching and I, I read a lot of, uh, I read books about Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith. I didn't like the narrowness of spiritual vision that I was brought up with. I didn't feel comfortable with it. And I, di- I didn't want to be in relationship with a deity that had those characteristics, vengeful and strike you down and send you to hell forever. And I said, I, I don't understand this. So I started searching and um, I read books about yoga and, and the ancient Indian paths. And uh, just over the years, I got to a point and I went to see uh, a meditation master speak and I had these extraordinary experiences. And then I went and took a weekend program and started a meditation practice and started studying and uh, got my yoga certification along the way to be, and I was a yoga teacher for seven years and just the the physical married with the mindful and the heartful was really appealing to me and really helped me discover a lot of things about myself that had been hidden, uh, hidden covered up, if you would. Mm-hmm. And I know that you live 
in the mountains of uh-huh. sorts now with your above, husband, Renee. Above San Bernardino, uh, the Lake Arrowhead, and Big Bear. People have heard of Big Bear because yeah. they're skiing up there. And we've been here for 23 years, and we drive to L.A. to see family and friends, but but we're up in the mountains, and it's beautiful. Well, you're you're caretaking again for a dear friend. Who... I know. My friend came to visit me for a couple of weeks from Tennessee, and we went to the dog park with Cooper, little mini Cooper, and mm-hmm. uh, he and another dog were playing, and the dog sideswiped my friend Deborah just enough that she toppled and lost her balance and fractured her wrist and got a small fracture in her tibial plateau, whatever the heck that is. So she's got eight weeks of recovery and she's with me and it's a busy household right now. (laughs) And I can't go anywhere. I can't have Thanksgiving with my family. I I can't see my grandchildren. You know, I'm like, eh. I know. But hopefully other than that, Everybody's healthy. Yeah, everybody's good. Okay. Robin and April are expecting their fourth child. So that's very exciting. Mazel tov. That's I great. Know, mazel tov. Yep. That's good. And Brennan has one, two. Brennan has two children. Tyler is 12, and Cheyenne was adopted two years ago when she was three. And she's five years old now. She'll be six in March. And she's just a funny little girl. Come on, Nana, come and play in my room with my toys. <laughs> what was the thing she said to you the other day? Oh, I said, honey, let me I'll just use the bathroom a minute. And I said, I'll come to your room. She's standing outside the bathroom door. And she knocks on the door and says, Nana, I said, honey, I just need, give me one more minute. And she said, are you pooping? <laughs> okay. I said, uh, Yeah. <laughs> And that's sort of a, a a beautiful juxtaposition to the fact that you're listed in the who's who of America, the who's who of American women. You were given the Woman of Achievement Award. And I will say, everybody poops. And everybody poops. <laughs> There's a book called Everybody Poops. I'm sorry to end on that note, but, <laughs> you know, we're friends. So, <laughs> Gloria Loring, it's quite a living. You know what, E.B.? It's quite a life. Well, I really want to thank you for listening, for sharing, for subscribing to, hopefully even rating this podcast and telling your friends, because after all, this is just about talking with friends. So thank you for being in my expanding circle of friends. And the truth is, whether you're living quite the living, we're all really lucky to be living quite the life.